0: The studies are really evident that the outcomes are better for patients in the outpatient facility and the doctors and the patients are happier so for me it's a huge win the cost to help to the medicare comes down doctors are happier their staff is happier the patients are happier and the outcomes are better and so it's a win all the way around and that's why kind of finding this space for me and margin was so important because everything we do is trying to help a problem that's systemic the healthcare system in the us today
1: Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On this week's episode, I chat with the founder and CEO of Margin, Chaz Sanders. Chaz is a veteran of the healthcare industry. He's been an executive at Zimmer Biomet, Davita, and others. After that, he stepped out of the industry to launch Margin. Now, Margin is a tech-enabled procurement solution that helps ambulatory medical centers purchase the equipment they need to operate. Apparently before Margin supplies were purchased via phone calls and fax machines. Margin not only has put the process on the internet but also helps doctors reduce their spend by up to 15 to 20% and that is huge bucks. In many cases that's hundreds of thousands of dollars per office per year. Now in addition to hearing about his company and the many lessons he's learned as a founder all which were very insightful What's great about this conversation is hearing a sophisticated business person provide clarity and insights into why the healthcare industry is so dysfunctional. And it turns out one of the reasons is that the healthcare industry is managed in a very similar way to that of the government of communist Russia. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Chaz, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm a big fan. Very cool. So let's start at the top. It's how I always like to do this. Can you give us an overview of Margin?
0: Yeah, Margin is a kind of new concept in healthcare. We focus only on outpatient facilities like surgery centers. And essentially what we do are two things. We renegotiate the price of every line item of everything they need to deliver care to their patients. And then the second piece of what we do is we are a technology company. So up to this point, hospitals, doctors' offices, et cetera, could only order by calling their sales reps. And so, what we've created is a platform for them to manage every part of their inventory management with one platform. They can order from every vendor at one time with one purchase order. And so, that's what we do. We are completely in the supply chain space for healthcare.
1: Okay. Wait. So, for surgery centers, those are non-hospitals. Those are like the offices you go to uh, where there's a doctor there and they do something.
0: Yeah. So, those are the really happy places you go for care. Uh, They're usually very well-built. They aesthetically look nice as opposed to a hospital that just has that old green tile. And this is where they do procedures that you can be in and out in the same day.
1: So there's no overnight stay, no real complex procedure. Okay. And so when you talk about not having to order from your sales rep, does that mean that people at surgery centers before margin were doing all of their supply ordering over the phone? Yeah, mostly over the phone, about 80%. So they would call
0: their rep. Rep would be in a surgery covering somebody else. So they'd miss the rep. The rep would call them back. Now they're in a surgery. They call the rep back. And finally, the rep's running cross town and they write the purchase order number on their scrub pants. Um, The other mechanisms is they can call into an 800 number, but we all know how horrible that experience is. And in some circumstances, some individual companies might have a portal to order, but you're juggling 15, 20 different logins and trying to navigate everyone's kind of software system. So So this is a hell of a job. Is this usually one person or more? Usually it's one. It sounds like a lot of work. It is. I'd say our average customer before margin probably spends five to seven hours a week managing supplies. And that's on top of a full day of surgery. So you're standing there on your feet all day in lead. Um, So usually it's one to two staff members. But for us, what we found is they're really highly paid staff members. You know, these are $100,000
1: nurses or x-ray techs. They're truly just ordering supplies. Wow. Now, you said inventory management. So, what, is, what are people doing? I, I'm, as we're talking about this, I'm realizing this is an environment that's probably fax machines and outdated Excel files. A lot of healthcare is. It's amazing how many documents
0: are sent via fax in healthcare. And, and healthcare, you know, for as innovative as technology can become to deliver care to a patient, processes and infrastructure in healthcare have not changed in 20 or 30 years. So, they're just really antiquated. Why is that? You know, I I think what happens in healthcare is whenever there's a platform, people want to build off the same platform. Uh, So, in healthcare, the first tech solutions they were getting were truly electronic medical records. But if you ever have a physician friend, ask them about their experience with electronic medical records. It's just a series of drop down screens, which are entirely annoying. And so, you know, the problem is people can't be innovative, they try to recreate or copy what's out there. But if the stuff out there isn't good, we should recreate the entire wheel. And in every other sector in the world, that's done at a rapid pace. And in healthcare, it just isn't. Yeah. But why is it not in healthcare?
1: Because you know, in the same time period, every other industry I could think of has been adapting, advancing. They've been atomizing the technology, taking these giant platforms and breaking them down to pieces where companies specialize in doing them very elegantly. If you're talking about kind of really outdated tech across the board, why has this industry had the brakes on it?
0: Yeah, so I, I would say that there's a couple of factors. One is that healthcare is very niche. And so the sector of healthcare you're talking about could be very dissimilar from another. And and being niche is also very clickish. So you're actually in the know or in the, in the group or in the A crowd is a big feat. The other part is that the really bright people that innovate other industries just don't as a general, they don't have the reference or the framework to understand the, the workflows for your average healthcare provider. And so, you could have a nice solution, but if you don't understand what it's like in the daily life for that healthcare provider, and you're not addressing the needs for the workflow, then you're at a disadvantage. And we see that a lot. You know, There's a few competitors of mine that are trying to emerge, and their technology is interesting, but it doesn't handle what the flow is for those staff members every day.
1: But in every other industry, as a VC, I see someone jump out of the industry. They were not in a technological industry at its core. They realized something was weird, right? They're using Uber yeah. on their cell phone for their personal life, and then they're going into these extremely outdated technologies. Yeah. And they show up and they pitch us. Why does that not happen more rapidly in healthcare, right? Something so mission critical, there's so many smart people around it. Yeah, it, it, it's bizarre to me.
0: It, it's a great question. Uh, I couldn't give you a clear cut answer. I mean, the reality is, I think,
1: as a general rule,
0: if you just take the, the life cycle of a physician, you know, they're in school all the way through college. Right. If they're lucky, they have a year off after college where they blow off some steam. Then they jump right back into medical school. Then they jump into their residency. Then they jump into their fellowship program. Then they're trying to join a practice. And from the moment they hit med school for the next 10 to 12 years, before they even start treating their own patients with full autonomy, everyone from every sector of their life is asking them to buy something. They're always being sold. And so when new innovative technology comes out, it's being thrown in a bucket with all these vendors that have been after something from doctors from day one. And a Mm -hmm. lot of the times they just can't embrace the concept of change. Uh, We had some of those headwinds early on when we started Margin, and I made a decision not to be a marketing company. I wanted to pull customers to me by just offering great service and letting their friends talk to them about us. And so we've grown really organically just from word of mouth, but I think it's that mindset of physicians that they're
1: always being sold. And if you're always being sold, you're going to be resistant to hear anything new. Okay, so you've got you've got a technology solution to help with the inventory management procurement. Um, you mentioned also the price negotiation. How much variance is there in medical supply pricing? When I think of this, syringes and you know the gowns and everything else, I assume all of that's extraordinarily commoditized, and there's not a lot of margin in it anyway. What's the, you know, how much does this vary? It's, it's crazy. There are some
0: devices where I've seen a 50% swing from the East Coast to the West Coast in the same product. In, wow. the, in the same type of facility with the same type of physician doing the same type of volume. Uh, so it just depends. What we find, we have a nice mix between new constructions, you know, new centers that are opening now, and centers that have a historical spend for 5, 10, 15 years. And what we find is on our centers that have been open for a long time, we're still saving them between 15 and 20 percent on their global
1: spend are they surprised by that yeah you think that you've been in the business for a long time you've got all the good pricing but i guess behind the scenes someone with an excel sheet's laughing right?
0: yeah you know what it is is uh, i think everyone will focus on the most expensive items that they buy and you know they buy and use but the really expensive items you buy and use you may only do 15 or 20 surgeries a year mm. whereas you could do a thousand surgeries overall And because you've only focused on your most expensive line items, all the smalls are bleeding you out. And so it's, you know, for us, it's the aggregate from the moment that you buy a staple remover to the
1: moment that you buy an x-ray machine, we handle everything in between. So what kind of spend is that when we're talking about a a surgery centers? I assume that's millions of dollars. It it can be. So
0: our, our core customer base right now are physicians who do procedures related to blood vessels. They're kind of like plumbers for the human body. And our average center with one operator, so one physician, will spend about a million dollars a year. Now, if you had a surgery center that was doing orthopedics or spine and they have three or four doctors, that could be a $10 million spend per year. Uh, it just depends on their volume. But I would say uh, your average family doctor will spend $30,000 a year on supplies. Your average doctor who does procedures will spend between 700 and $3 million.
1: Okay, wait, and you're talking about wiping out 15-20% of the cost structure. So you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, one of the
0: recent centers that we brought on, we, they were doing $2.4 million before us. They had been open for about five years, and we got them down to sub $2 million. Okay, so their expenses dropped
1: more than 400 grand. And that's directly to their bottom line. How painful was that for them to go through that process? Is that easy, like flipping a switch, or is it whole thing. It's a little bit of work because there's nuances. You have reps that you have relationships with for years
0: and the reps are paid generally on a percent commission on dollar sales. So if they did a million dollars with you last year and now you want them to give you the same service and you buy the same product for 700,000, you're going there's going to be a rub there. Uh, but uh, many of the physicians are really really excited and surprised. You know, cuz maybe they think they're spending too much, 10,000, 5,000 Our average customer, we're saving two,
1: three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow! Do the product suppliers do they consider you an ally or a threat? Right, because it sounds like your mission is help the doctors, the um, you know people purchasing the products here. Are the sellers threatened by you coming in and? taking prices down or is there a benefit to them? It's kind of a
0: mixed bag uh, because we do so many new constructions. All the vendors are really excited to work with us because they want to get their foot in the door for these new builds. Cause it's all upside mm. where some we've had some rubs that some vendors want their cake and eat it too. So they want to preserve their price point for their existing customers and get all the new business. And that's just not a formula that works for us. And so Uh, Half the industry now, I would say, has set pricing for my customers, meaning whether they buy one widget a year or a thousand widgets, my customers all get the same price. And with some vendors, I'm still negotiating at every center and every doctor level. Uh, It just depends. We've been very fortunate that, uh, you know, in our industry, there's a lot of companies that are called GPOs, group purchasing organizations. To legally be considered a GPO, you have to get paid by the vendor. And that never made sense to me, especially when I was back in med device. You know, hey, I just give you really strong pricing for your network, and now you want me to pay you 3% for the luxury of selling to you? It just didn't make sense. So when we launched Margin, I had a different formula. My thought is I was going to provide the tech solution included in my, sof- in my service. And so they're going to get a nice software tech solution that they didn't have before. And then in addition to that, they were going to pay me. So our average fee is 4 or 5% of whatever their spend is. So, in the circumstance of the customer I referenced a minute ago, uh, we saved them, we took them from 2.4 to 2 million. They saved a gross 400,000. They're now paying us 4% on the 2 million going forward. So, their net savings is 320,000, plus they're saving about seven or eight staff hours a week. And and so that's kind of our formula. And because of that, I felt there was no kind of ethical conflicts. I am not incentivized to steer anyone to any particular company. I'm agnostic a company. so the doctors tell me what they want to use, and I'll negotiate
1: for them. So, the GPOs are kind of like the financial advisors out there, right? They're getting hidden kickbacks and fees. And so, while they're, well, they're servicing you as a doctor, they're not really on your side because you're not paying them. Yeah, they're, Is that the right way to think about it? They're, they're not
0: part of the family because you're going to be aligned with whoever writes the checks to you. I mean, that's right. just human nature. And so GPOs, we, we partner with a GPO. And the reason why is I don't have the time to negotiate every band-aid that there is in the marketplace. So I use a GPO to help me out with all the small stuff, syringes, band-aids, pieces of tape. And then all the big stuff, we handle all those negotiations. So I think there's a place for GPOs, but you, you know, with business in general, you always got to look at everyone's BATNA and what everyone's incentives are. And I think. You know, for healthcare, everyone's been incentivized to take something from doctors, hmm. and that's why it—you know—innovation is slow because you're not including doctors as part of the table. You're kind of bringing things from them. Yeah.
1: Hmm. well Anecdotally, I've heard in the market that doctor pay has kind of stagnated. It's not—it's not what it used to be as the market—you know—the value of the dollar is deflated, et cetera. Is that? Um, is this part of the story? Doctors are making less money long-term because they kind of get chipped away by all the different vendors and everyone else in the supply, in the supply chain?
0: Yeah, I mean, you and I are young enough uh, to kind of know healthcare as it stands today. But if you were to ask kind of your parents, hey, what was it like to see your family doctor? You would go in, you'd have an hour with the doctor. They would go through mm-hmm. every ailment head to toe that you're facing and come up with a treatment plan. Now healthcare is really compartmentalized so it's a machine your family doctor is seeing 60 patients a day to make the money that a doctor 20 years ago would do seeing 20. and so they're a machine they have to get you in and get you out and they really focus on the small minute kind of myopic part of healthcare that they focus on and you know in addition to that medicare has been reducing rates so in healthcare, medicare cms sets the price point and almost every private payer will follow suit So as Medicare keeps carving down, for example, the doctors that we are selling to currently, they just faced a 15 to 17% rate reimbursement cut in January of 2022. So overnight, they lost 15% of the revenues for the same procedures they did last year. Now, for my organization, that was good for us because people are seeking us out, trying to figure out how they can recoup that 15% back, right? But yeah, the healthcare is being squeezed and you know, what a lot of people don't realize is say you get a surgery done at the hospital. There are two parts of that fee, about 80, 90% of it goes to the hospital as a technical portion. So it pays for the facility. Mm. Only about 10 or 15% actually goes to your physician. And so what physicians realize is in the hospital, they're just a number. They're being told how to deliver care as opposed to choosing the care that they want for their own patients. And if they move all their procedures out of the hospital to their own facility, now they get to recoup the technical portion and the professional portion, and they get control of the spent. But they're using the products they want and delivering the care they want. So we're seeing a huge migration of you know, procedures and doctors leaving hospitals to open
1: up their own surgery centers.
0: And I think it's great.
1: But when they get to their own surgery center, they're on the same reimbursement program from the government. Right, so isn't that always going to limit the type of quantity, like the quality of the care, the time they can spend per patient, because there's a there's a cap.
0: Uh, there is, it, you know, it's interestingly enough. Uh, say you were going to get a stent put in your leg, if you were to have it done at the ambulatory surgery center versus the hospital, the hospital gets paid twice as much more. Same yeah. physician, same technology, same outcome. Why? It's just it's just the, the overhead. It's just the game that they have in place.
1: And right, but when you say it's a game, it. it do they need that money is that an inherent cost or they're just saying hey let's charge as much as we can because we're we're bumping heads with the insurance companies and they're trying to undercut us so we're gonna ask for too much
0: i, I think on an ethical level you could argue that the hospital is treating indigent patients and that they have procedures that are loss leaders for them so the mm-hmm. procedures that are profitable need to feed the rest of the hospital uh, the reality though is cost of care should be delivered at a really affordable price point where we're incentivizing our brightest to go into healthcare and do be doctors and and our brightest scientists to keep developing new technologies and new new paths forward and unfortunately because healthcare is somewhat broken in the us we're not seeing that our best and brightest that used to be scientists and doctors and mathematicians are now going into finance and investments and sales positions because the income is not what it used to be
1: and so the income, though, the reason why people are making less is because the government, on a real dollar basis, is reimbursing at lower rates yeah. through cuts or not changing it to match inflation? Or is it because the cost structure has gone up and there's been no adjustment to, to raise the rates, the reimbursement rates as well? What's the driver? Is it price compression or cost scaling or both?
0: I I think it's both. You know, the reality is every year, Medicare takes six months. In June, they put out their proposed rates for the next year. And then in December, they put out their final rates. And over that five to six month period, they are supposed to be looking at every dollar that's spent, everything that's reported, every cost of every implant, and they're coming up with reimbursement. And the reality is they're just driving down the reimbursement for physicians, so physicians at certain points said hey i don't want to be in the hospital anymore Uh, my surgery time is not guaranteed i was supposed to do this procedure at two it's now 9 p.m and i'm finally getting the patient into the room Uh, or hey i've used this you know company's widget for the last five years and then today they're telling me i can no longer use it because the hospital just negotiated a contract with a different company's widget and so physicians have just gotten really really tired of being told how to deliver care not having the accessibility to the labs and they can't give the patient experience that they want and so when you had that kind of boiling over and now the ability to have these outpatient facilities and they've been vetted and it's it's the fastest rate of growth in healthcare right now i can control everything make more money and have a better quality of life and then the studies are really evident that the outcomes are better for patients in the outpatient facility and the doctors Mm -hmm. and the patients are happier so, for me, it's a huge win. The cost to health, to the Medicare comes down. Doctors are happier. Their staff is happier. The patients are happier. And the outcomes are better. And so, it's a win all the way around. And that's why kind of finding this space for me and Margin was so important because everything we do is trying to help a problem that's systemic, the
1: healthcare system in the U.S. today. So, this is a macro shift. We're seeing, is that right? Like, doctors are essentially moving away from hospitals or is it happening in piecemeal and it's not a macro shift, right? If someone was to study this, are we watching the decline of centralized hospitals?
0: Yeah, there's, you know, uh, so my first hospital I ever sold into was uh, Hahnemann University Hospital in Philly. Big teaching center, residency programs attached to Drexel Medical School. Uh, Last year, they went out of business. They went bankrupt. It was a pillar of healthcare in Philadelphia. Uh, You know, I probably repped 3,000 surgeries at that hospital. I spent my 20s and 30s there. And so what we're seeing is there's a huge migration of physicians out of the hospital into their own facilities. It's much akin to the huge migration that we saw in the 90s from Sears, Macy's, to, you know, The Gap and Banana Republic and specialized stores that focus on a few things. Whereas 30, 40 years ago, you bought everything you needed from Sears Roebuck. And now Sears is just kind of in a few locations across the country, right? And so, right. I think what we're seeing is people like having really fine-tuned choice on the items that they want to buy or service. And having specialized opportunities is kind of what
1: in the U.S. of what is, you know, what the average consumer wants. And what kind of medical practices do you support? Because you, you don't support every dimension of medicine.
0: Yeah, I don't. We've played around with a few, but our, our core business right now is uh, interventional cardiology, interventional radiology, Vascular surgery and nephrology. Uh, I would say that before the calendar year ends, just because of previous relationships in my professional life, uh, we probably will jump into pain
1: management, spine, and orthopedics this year. Uh, when you get to the end of the year and you've got those other practices in line, have you covered kind of 80 20 of the market or is there a lot of space outside of that? Yeah. So there's, you know, that's part of, you know, for me
0: and my kind of my journey as an entrepreneur and a founder. I'm finally at the point where we're positive cash flow. We're growing at a really consistent, strong clip. And I know that we're safe, right? And that's a huge hurdle. (laughs) But now that we're there, um, now that we're there, I'm kind of surveying my industry. So uh, a plastic surgery office called me a couple of weeks ago. And topically, it sounds great, right? Awesome. Fun procedures. Everyone leaves happy. And the reality is I looked at the math of what they buy and it was not worth the effort for us. So their annual spend was a little too low, uh, whereas some specialties, orthopedics and spine, where I'm not in now, they could have 5 or $10 million a year in spend. And so every center I sign there is four or five of my current customer base. Uh, for me, what I decided to do is to get really specialized in one area of medicine. You know, so we've got 40,000, 50,000 SKUs that we buy routinely. I know mm, every well. product. I know every competitive product of every other one. And so I know the classes of products and anyone who comes on, we can onboard them quickly. Uh, I'll have to recreate that wheel in orthopedics and spine and learn everyone's skews and expanding. So growth should be kind of calculated for us.
1: What are the reasons why people say no to this? What are your naysayers? What's the, what's the friction in the sale?
0: So, you know, what I would say is we pass on a lot more customers uh, than the customers say no to us uh, because for us our you know it's easy hey i'll save you more money than i charge you and if i don't you can walk away i mean that right. that talking points pretty easy uh, i think pride is a big part of it there are a lot of physicians and business people that you know kind of view themselves as the top negotiator or you know the the oracle of omaha right and they're not you know so uh, there are times where doctors are like, hey, my prices, you can't beat them. And I'm like, All right, maybe you're right, but I'll give you a free assessment. Just tell me what your products are and tell me how much you spend. And I'll tell you if you overspend. And so usually with a free assessment, they're happy to kind of sh- test the waters. But most people just don't think we can do any better than they have before. And the reason why is their sales reps are telling them, oh, you got the best pricing in the country. Right. And But again, how is your sales rep but incentivized?
1: The, but the numbers are the numbers. That should be pretty easy to discern, no?
0: Yeah, I think there is a bit of work. You're going to have to do a couple hours of work to get all your spend together and organized so I can actually assess it. You know, And a lot of these physician practices don't have traditional business acumen. So their entire spend could be kept in a shoebox with every invoice slip that comes in the course of the year. Oh, no. And then their hope God. is at the end of the year, they're going to pay an accountant to put every invoice into an Excel. Now also if you're making a million or 2 million in profit on your facility, you may never look at that shoebox because a million or $2 million in profit is better than the 600,000 you made at the hospital. And so, you know, I think there's just varying degrees of business acumen and organizational
1: skills. Got it, okay. So normal human issues, not, not logic-based issues. Got it. Okay, When you look at the U.S. healthcare, you were talking about this before a little bit about how things are trending. The thing that always gets stuck in my mind is I always hear that the U.S. is two to three times more expensive per capita, or maybe not more expensive, spends two to three times more per capita than other countries in NATO. So we're not talking countries in different economic situations or different access to healthcare. Countries in NATO. Why is that? What is happening with the U.S. healthcare system? So if you think of the
0: average American's just preferences and styles or what they're accustomed to in their daily life, uh, as Americans, we want choice. You always want to have choice. And as Americans, you also want to have things done very quickly. So choice and patience are two things that are kind of innate to being an American that you may not see in other countries. So in a lot of other countries, especially kind of European or NATO countries, they could have socialized medicine. So your healthcare will be free. But you're going to be assigned a doctor in 63 days, and you have to show up on that day, and you're not going to know who your doctor is that day. and Nor are you going to have the ability to say, hey, I want this. Whereas if you take an American, and they need to get a total hip done, you know, so they need a hip replacement. With today's technology, they can search three or four biggest brands. They can read testimonials. They can look at any lawsuits or anything. They can find all those things out. They can also research their doctor. Hey, this doctor went to Harvard Medical School, did their internship at Rush, and, you know, they have done this procedure 700 times a year, and this is the doctor I want to go to. So, for that optionality, we pay up for it. And there's also a markup, I'm sorry, Mark, there's also a markup on products because, yes, the unit cost on an item might be $25, and the company could sell it for $250. But a portion of that has to go to future research and development because if you're not going to innovate new technology you're going to be left behind and so the research and development budgets for a lot of these med device companies is astronomical
1: compared to other spaces or sectors okay but, but comparing it to other countries in the same sector are they doing less r d and the narrative you're telling is not the narrative we usually hear in the news the narrative we hear in the news is are our systems broken
0: uh, the answer is yes right. There is a certain element of our system that's broken. Um, to answer your question directly, I think we're paying up for optionality. A lot of the rest of the world are paying lower price points for items than we may be, but they're not mm-hmm. contr- a lot of these companies are American-based medical device companies. And so when we're creating a lot of the technology here in the US, we're eating some of that research and development costs for the rest
1: of the world. Got it. So we're, we're paying more for better quality. And we're getting um we're investing in the future whereas other countries may not be you know that part of the supply chain but they might just be getting our technology and not paying the the same margin because it's not market there
0: yeah a hundred percent and the other part of that though is you know for me it comes down to two scores and when you talk about healthcare, i think people lose sight of the two things there's a clinical success and there is a patient satisfaction success And so, clinically, we could have a great outcome, but if the patient's not feeling like the pain's gone away or the issue's been resolved, then the outcome is a failure because at the end of the day, the patient has to be happy about it and be able to go back to their normal daily life. And so, when you look at outcomes, U.S. outcomes are not as promising as they used to be. We still have great medical care, and you're going to be with a physician that you like, arguably at a facility that you like, getting the products that you hope you get. But even with those options, the actual success rates are not that much better than the rest of the world. And so it shows you that we're innovating technology, maybe unnecessarily.
1: Mm. Yes. How does that square up? So we're we're spending more for better results. We're getting more optionality, but we're not getting better results. Yeah. So the money is going into the fluff of picking?
0: The money is going in... Or it's
1: going into R&D, or it's going into shareholder payouts like where where is the money going
0: i think the money is being split up in so many different directions it's not a direct linear progression on where to follow it some of it's going to compensation for the staffs and the clinical teams that are providing care some of it's going to hospitals and them kind of augmenting loss leader procedures some of it's going back to the med device companies some are going to developers and marketers you know so it's just there's so much spend in the u.s on healthcare that there's so many hands going into the pocket. And it's hard to know exactly where it's all being leveled
1: out. But someone's going to be able to do this math. You may not know it offhand, but numbers are numbers. Yeah, McKinsey, Bain, some of the consulting firms, someone needs to go out and dial this in. I'm sure they already have. Okay. What are the areas of healthcare that are the most dysfunctional operationally? Because so we're talking about, you're not, you're not implying it, but when I think of healthcare, I do assume there's a fair bit of inefficiency. Now, maybe that's not the case. And so maybe I should start there. And I think of hospitals and all that. I just assume they're wildly inefficient. If that's not the case, it, something's different. It, you know, as a business operator, it feels like chaos when you walk in. Um, you know, it, The scheduling's not right. It just doesn't feel the way I would run a company. So first of all, do you think healthcare is inefficient in its delivery of the service, or do you think it's efficient overall? I think it's incredibly inefficient. Okay. I, I assume that was an assumption okay. like obvious, but I was questioning myself there for a second. All right. So if it's inefficient, where, what, what where's the source of the dysfunction? You Why know, is it inefficient? That, that's a great question. And I actually, uh, I wrote
0: an article about that, uh, just recently, I, I think when you look at really successful organizations and let's take healthcare aside and just talk about industry, any business. Those companies that are very horizontal in their organization are usually able to address chaos, pivot, shift, make decisions, and evolve much faster than those vertical organizations. And so in healthcare, you've got this hierarchy system that's developed from the time that they're a first year medical student. So the first years are devalued to the fourth years. And then when they become a resident, you know, an intern year versus a residency year, there's a hierarchy there. And then there's a senior resident. Or chief resident as opposed to a junior resident and then as they go through their fellowship their first year fellow versus a second year fellow and new attending versus a you know tenured physician or surgeon so you have this whole ecosystem that's based on class systems you know doctors are the top of the food chain and then nurse practitioners and physician assistants and nurses and techs and so you have this pecking order in class system that has shown to be unsuccessful in every other area of business, but it's still the framework for healthcare. And so if you have to make a pivot or change, what happens in most healthcare societies or institutions now is you have three or four levels of decision-making to get to until someone pulls the trigger to change something. And that doesn't work. I mean, everyone else who runs a business knows hire great people, empower them to make choices, and make sure they're incentivized that they feel the business is as much theirs as it is the owners. And if you can do that, you can adapt and evolve and, and address marketplace shifts. Healthcare can't do that. You know, for example, I had uh, a situation early in a pandemic where uh, a large physician group needed hand sanitizer. And this is a time where you, you, know, you and I couldn't get that one and a half ounce jars from CVS, and they needed a thousand gallons of hand sanitizer. And so they called me and I said, hey, I can get you a thousand gallons of hand sanitizer drop shipped in 96 hours. I then had to wait three days for the final decision maker to make the yes or to give the yes so I can make place the order for them. And on the course of those three days, the thousand gallons evaporated. Right. Because this was
1: COVID and there was a shortage of everything.
0: And so, you know, I think. When you run a vertical organization or a hierarchical organization, you're setting yourself up for certain systemic issues. And that's all we've ever known in healthcare.
1: That's, been, that's fascinating because this is very comparable to the way we think of communist or, uh, societies functioning. Top-down, lots of layers. If, if you've seen Chernobyl on HBO, they do a pretty good, interesting job of um, illustrating how decisions are made And how those types of pecking order structures break as information flows. So we've got a parallel construct to that in our healthcare system. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard it pinned to that before. I think we all intuitively knew it was dysfunctional. I didn't know it was specifically because of hierarchy. I would have guessed it had to do with motivations or incentives, but I I didn't realize those stem specifically from the fact that you're trapped in a box as a level whatever, and you have to age in to being someone who can make a decision.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. And then there's a lot of, uh, of silos in healthcare. So, hey, I only do this sector of what we need. You know, My job is to check the patient in and get them to a room to change their clothes into a gown. Now, if that's your only responsibility, that's all you know. But what if you're out? Now, someone has to carry that part and their part is missing. So, cross-training of staffs and even kind of streamlining staffing uh, in a surgery center, we would have a doctor. Someone scrubbed in with the doctor to help assist in a sterile way with the doctor for the surgery, and then we have a nurse working the room. In a hospital, you'd have the doctor, that scrub tech that I mentioned, one or two nurses, and an anesthesiologist running, you know, running the medications in the back.
1: But you're saying they don't need all those people. It's just well, bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, it's just you know that's the way they've always done it bring down those number of headcounts you make the cost of healthcare to deliver a lot less and now you have a fewer number of people that hopefully are cross trained to do more things now obviously you can't cross train a tech a, a surgery tech to do the procedure you have to be a doctor there but right. certainly they can work the computer work the room do other things if they needed to so i think if, in healthcare if we can kind of get rid of that vertical organization get rid of the hierarchy or class system and start eliminating the silos to make sure that people are really proficient in multiple things, we could fix the system really, really quickly.
1: How do we get more of the people who are in the system now to step out of the system and become entrepreneurs and innovate? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are living this who know it's, it's nonsense. Yeah. How, you know, how, do they, how do we motivate them, support them? Yeah. So
0: what we're seeing is we're seeing physicians in large numbers going back and getting business degrees or business training, which I think is important because it's crazy that you go through so many years of training and never have a class on how to budget your practice or look at a cash flow statement. I mean, that's insane, right? Just it should be a one semester course at some point in medical school, right? Uh, As there should be a class on how to deal with industry. Hey, this is what to expect from and get from your representatives, their managers, their managers, the companies. And there's no education on that. But what we are seeing is a larger number of physicians leaving healthcare to join private equity, to join venture capital, to mm-hmm. start consulting. And, you know, what we've done for so many years is go, and, and physicians are really talented. They're, they're incredibly bright, often some of the brightest that we went to school with growing up, right? Right. Uh, their work ethic is second to none. I mean, most of them are up at 5 a.m., finishing at 8 p.m., five to six days a week. And, you know, I think what we've done in the past is we've engaged a physician to consult with us, and we've paid the physician a nice salary for those hours. We got the two or three kind of bullets that we wanted to hear from them to sustain our current narrative, and we never actually changed anything. Whereas, if we really empowered physicians to be decision makers, and there's some, uh, some great ones out there. Um, Vina Dasa has something called Doc Social. He's an orthopedic guy down in the, the Gulf. Uh, Aaron Fritz has a podcast called Backtable. He's sending out collateral and talking to physicians about clinical outcomes, business acumen. And so, what we're seeing is that we're seeing this pivot of physicians that are really saying, hey, we've got to fix healthcare. It's not going to be the administrator that's making a million dollars a year to be the CEO of a hundred million dollar hospital. It's, it's going to be physicians who are going to be driving things and we need to empower them to give them the education that they have that baseline to know what to say.
1: That's awesome. We'll link to those other podcasts in the show notes for folks listening. The other thing that I think is um, a need, you know, based on what you're describing is a basic operations class, right? Operations is one of those things that no one really talks about, you know, if you're in an if you're an industry organization, you're used to it now, but it's not really well branded to students in academia, et cetera. But every MBA goes through it. And it's one of those things that changes your lens, your framework for how to make process and organizations more efficient. So that's um that's something worth doing. For those who don't want to take a class or aren't going to do their MBA, there's a good book out there called The Goal. And it's basically required reading at most of the MBA programs. And I I think it kind of covers the 101 on operations. And it's written in a nice way, like a story. I'm a nerd, so I actually liked it. But a lot of my other classmates thought it was boring. But whatever. Um, Nonetheless, it'll teach you operations. Okay. But you're looking at this space. You're very close to it. You're an entrepreneur yourself. Where are other opportunities in the healthcare market that you think founders who are listening to this should pick up and lay claim, add some value, move our society forward?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think the the challenge is, uh, there's so many companies selling into physicians. So if you're gonna enter into healthcare, I think there's a few things you need to do. You need to build a voice for yourself. And so one of the things I did early on when we launched Margin was, I decided if I wanted to have a push or pull kind of marketing strategy. And so I could have raised a bunch of money, blasted the entire marketplace about us, and maybe we got a few customers. But what we decided to do is, you know, I as an individual became a subject matter expert. So I sat down and, and I, I was never strong at this before, but I sat down and wrote an article about healthcare. And then I pitched it to a bunch of medical journals and one of them bit. And then I, there was a nice response. So then another journal said, hey, we take an article from you. So now I'm at the point where I'm writing three or four articles a year in medical journals that are all physicians. And I don't talk about margin at all. I'm just... Giving knowledge and suggestions to the industry. Uh, that progressed to podcasts. I've now done a couple and you know, it's progressed that I'm now faculty on the panels with all doctors. So I'm speaking at four meetings this year. It'll be me and a series of doctors, and I will be contributing from just a business analytics or operations level. So I, I think an entrepreneur coming into this space really needs to take their time to build their voice. And to make sure that you're delivering a product that leaves a true problem, and the problem is that most people are not bringing physicians into that discussion uh, and saying, "Hey, is this really a pain point for you?" And if this isn't, what is your pain point? Um, and so, for you know, founders, if I was looking at a space, uh, you know, I think supply chain. Obviously, I jumped into that, and we're pretty much the only true show in town right now. Uh, so I feel good that I. You know, to use one of my business school expressions, I jumped in the pool and peed in it as soon as I did. So I'm dissuading everybody from coming in, um, as best I possibly can. But uh, that being said, uh, you know, I think the other the other part of this is, uh, you know, revenue cycle management. You know, a lot of those companies are outsourcing it or have it outsourced to other countries, and so they will submit the claims. But if they're denied, they're not fighting denials. Uh, I th- you know I think accreditation. If you can be an expert uh in the accreditation process and know what it takes to get a surgery center or an office approved in New Jersey versus Idaho, because every state has their own nuances and laws, I think there's a lot of need there. What we're seeing so much of uh, is marketing companies and digital marketing companies and all those sort of things where they're incredibly valuable. But how are you differentiating yourself from the space? Because there's a you know. I don't know about you, but every morning I have five or seven emails. Hey, we've refreshed your website. Would you like to see what it looks like? And no, no, I've got four times the growth of the market. I think I'm pretty good. I'm not changing anything. But if I got a question saying, hey, I like what you're doing, You know, what pain points you're having, maybe there's a space that we overlap and we can collaborate. That's a different approach. But healthcare, there's so much money being thrown into it these days. There's so much private equity money going into healthcare. And so, being able to you know figure out where there's an urgent need today is really hard. I think a lot for me, what's really ingenious is those healthcare companies or products that are going direct to the physician. So they're cutting out their sales forces. So you're cutting out uh, vice president of sales, regional vice president of sales, district managers, seven reps per geography, all the way down to the same organizational chains for marketing. And just saying to the physician, Hey, I can get you this product. It's FDA approved. It works really well. I'll send you a couple of samples, try it. If you like it, buy more. So I think that direct to consumer selling where you're having commodity products being sold direct to the physician without a sales force. I think that's really smart. Uh, we're also seeing a huge uptick right now in refurbished technologies. So some of these instruments or things they use in a procedure might be $2,000 a pop. And then after the procedure is done, they're being thrown out. And so what we're seeing is these refurbishing companies that are actually buying that trash with engineers, cleaning it, sterilizing it, repackaging it, testing it, and then selling it back to the consumer at a third of the cost. And I think that's brilliant because there's no risk of disease transmission. It's FDA approved. And in addition to that, it's not just ending up in a landfill so you know on the ecological level we're really really they're in tune on a financial metric it's bringing down the cost of healthcare, and you know so I, I think there are some avenues there that make sense
1: okay that's a lot of good ideas for an entrepreneur someone who's going to go out and try to set, change the system from the private sector but i'm sure there are some levers here that can only be changed with policy if you were king not president <laughs> what would you change you know there is a
0: there's a beautiful thing and, and your average american would never know this there's only as far as i understand it there's only one disease state of every ailment that a human being could have there's only one disease state that's federally protected in the country in the us today and what does that mean uh, meaning regardless of your economic status regardless if you have insurance or not if you have this disease the government will pay for you to be treated. I see. And so that only disease day right now is dialysis. If your kidneys fail and you have to get dialysis treatment, it's federally mandated that after your third dialysis and, you know, treatment, you go on Medicare and Medicare will cover it forever. And Why so, that one?
1: Of uh, all the things.
0: Because once your kidneys fail, your life expectancy is, you know, goes to nothing and you, you die. So that was a way and huge numbers of patients go through kidney failure, uh, become what we call ESRD patients and stage renal disease patients. And so when I look at that model, and there's some huge companies that have grown from that uh, DaVita, for example, you know, I don't know what their market cap is today, but, you know, well beyond $10 billion in market cap that started because of this new law. And now they're treating patients globally. And so, I think that's a beautiful thing. If I was king, I would look at a few other disease states and say, hey, these patients deserve to be treated. They shouldn't have to go bankrupt or become homeless in order to get care. And I think as a country, if we start mandating treatments for specific disease states that make sense, then we start dealing with a lot of underlying issues. So, if you are a dialysis patient, uh, you have a 30% chance that you're gonna end up losing a limb. Uh, wow. your, your life expectancy once you go on dialysis, if I'm still correct and the numbers are consistent, you've got about five-year life expectancy. And so, there's it. all these disease states that we could start looking at if we federally funded the treatment of them early on, then we kind of alleviate or remove all these comorbidities and complexities later. And so, that would probably be the thing that I would do is I would have a task force just looking at every disease state, talk to every specialty of physician and say, hey, if we were going to protect one of your patients, which
1: one would it be? Right, so to hear that on the outside, though, it just sounds like spend a bunch of money. Is the case you're making that spending money on these things mm-hmm. will be a net savings when you get into the total? Obviously, there's human lives here, and there's a whole bunch yeah. of other dimension to this. But you know, I, I know the I can hear the naysayers in my head saying, "Well, the government can't pay for everything." Yeah. So, how does it? Well, so know, f- is this something that ends up being ROI positive because of future cost savings, or unknown? Yeah,
0: we, I, I think the answer. From the data that's out there, it's clearly yes. Uh, So if we take the same patient that I just spoke about, those dialysis patients, say they go on and they get peripheral arterial disease. So they essentially get a a clot in their leg. That clot prevents the lower leg from being fed nutrients, blood, oxygen, everything you need. It goes on to ulceration. Those ulcerations progress, and then we go on to an amputation. If you think about how much Medicare or Medicaid will pay for that patient that's now been amputated... They're going to have to be transported everywhere they go they're going to need in-home nursing they're going to need uh mobility such as wheelchairs carts etc they are going to go through depression so they're going to need psychiatric help Uh, because they're no longer ambulatory they're going to start getting pains and sores and other things so i think you know what we found is if you can prevent illness on the front end by having the right systems to incentivize health we can prevent so many come you know you know uh, competitive or comorbid conditions going on later. And, and that's, that's a beautiful thing about being a country like the U.S. We have the resources to do this, uh, but it's no different than a huge business. You know, I, I've worked with large corporations, and all budgets are into these little silos. So at the end of the year, the mentality is, hey, I still have 400000 in my budget. If I don't use it, I don't get it next year. And so you get this wasted spend, right? Whereas if you had one person that just looked at the, the organization kind of holistically and said, hey, you know, they had a lighter year in expenses this year. It doesn't mean it's going to be a lighter year next year, but let's just take the 400,000, keep it, benefits of business, or let's take the 400,000 and reallocate it. Those are the companies that can really sail through and win as opposed to this bureaucracy. And the mm-hmm. government and healthcare is that bureaucracy. You know, your bucket is your bucket.
1: Chaz, how'd you get here? There's, uh, you've got a unique specialty, a little corner of the world you've carved out. What's your journey been?
0: Uh, great question. So I, uh, I'm from the Northeast originally. Uh, we're actually located just outside New York City now in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, but my, my mother is from Ireland. Uh, so I'm first generation. I grew up fairly poor in the Northeast. And I just had a couple of things work out for me. Uh, So I won a scholarship, went to a boarding school that profoundly changed my life, Uh, went to a decent college and got a degree in pre-med. I thought I was going to be a doctor, but I had no money. And so I started selling to doctors thinking maybe I could save a few bucks and then get an inside look at it. Uh, Unfortunately for me, the doctors I sold to were all family doctors and I had no interest in being in that world anymore. And so I worked my way through. I had a bunch of years as a sales rep. I probably stood in four, or five thousand surgeries, uh, pacemakers, stents, orthopedic spine, and then I went and decided to go in house, and so I took a huge pay cut. Somehow I had to wherewithal, and I, I probably should really, you know, kind of thank my wife for that because she's like, "Hey, give it a chance." But I worked my way through the food chains at Zimmer Biomet. Uh, then I went to Davita. Along the way, I got an MBA, and you know, after kind of twenty years in the space. I just asked myself a question, you know, did I want to be part of the rat race? You know, so I was a senior executive making very good money, but proportionally versus the money I was bringing into the organizations that I was leading, I was getting kind of nothing and I wasn't happy. I had all these metrics and bureaucracies that we were talking about that exist in healthcare. And so I decided, you know, I sat back with a pen and paper and said, hey, if I was to start a business, how could I be in healthcare and be fully aligned with a doctor? as opposed to trying to sell to or take from a doctor. And this concept of margin was that. So, you know, I started it after about 20 years in healthcare, I went out on my own and started margin about two and a half, three years ago. Did
1: you have any mentors along
0: the way? I did. Uh, There's a, you know, I was very fortunate. I had a, a lot of people who invested time and energy into me, but there was one person who, who really kind of taught me a fundamental lesson. And, and that lesson is, you know, own what you don't know, own your shortcomings, and either design mechanisms to overcome them or find somebody who can alleviate those concerns for you. And so uh, one mentor was a group president I had uh, back in orthopedics. And I was fortunate enough that I was invited to a long-term strategy meeting. And it was a group president, the CFO, the CMO, and the person in charge of M&A, and me. And I was kind of an entry level marketing guy, I had no business being there. Uh, In fact, my boss and my boss's boss weren't invited to the meeting. And so we're in this meeting, and the morning's going on, and now we have our lunch break. And uh, the group president comes over to me and is like, hey, Chaz, how are things going? and i told him i said hey thank you for this opportunity if it's okay with you i think i'm probably better served to help the organization if i just go back to my desk and knock out the work that's on my plate uh, at which point this guy uh, grabbed me by the elbow dragged me into a spare room and asked me what was wrong with me and uh, and he said do you understand right. the opportunity you have and i said i do i said but i'm not contributing you guys are using acronyms that i don't know And I'm not scared or embarrassed to say this, but I didn't even know what EBITDA was back then, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it was 10 years ago. And I said, you're using acronyms I don't know, so I can't really contribute. And I don't understand some of the concepts. And he said, get back in the room, you're not going anywhere. So he got back in the room and he stood up in front of the group of all senior leaders and said, hey, new rule. No one's allowed to use an acronym until Chaz knows what it means. Amazing. And so, that could have gone two ways. And it was a coin toss. I could have really shot myself in the foot or I could have done what I lucked into. But what I lucked into was, hey, thank you so much. Guys, I promise I'll take notes. I'll promise that I'll learn this as quickly as I can. Please give me that extra couple seconds. And the second half of that day and the next day was the best meeting that I've ever been a part of because I felt like I was a part of it. And so, Owning that I couldn't speak their language at that point was a huge learning thing because I, you know, I was an alpha guy, an athlete in high school and college. I would never wanted to admit defeat or admit my, my weaknesses. And just that ability was the biggest thing I learned from that mentor. And we had breakfast about a week later and I kind of used that and I said, hey, man, I want an MBA. And so, the company then paid for my MBA and, you know, I became an executive. It was, you know. He was really, really good. Um, the other thing that he taught me was being human. You know, we try to kind of posture ourselves as the experts or posture ourselves as the leaders or the perfect, you know, member. And really owning your shortcomings and communicating those just fosters so much trust in the people around you. Um, but yeah, he, his name's Adam Johnson. He was a
1: fantastic mentor for me. Okay. Now, you've been an executive at some of these large, court, large organizations. How has that transition been to being a software executive at a startup? Well, it's a little bit of a different game. So
0: anyone who knows me well, I'm not particularly tech savvy. Uh, You know, in fact, I'm really, really proud of myself that I was able to use Google Chrome to get on this podcast with you. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's a huge win. Uh, But that being said, you know, I had spent so much time in product and service, product and sales, product and service. And so when we launched Margin, I, you know, I brought on a development team and we built the first, you know, first version of our software. And initially it was just, hey, a customer could go on, pick out the products they want to buy, put in a purchase order, and it should place the orders for them. And so we spent all this time developing it. I was assured it was ready to go the day that go goes live. An hour after I tell our first customer they can start using the system, I get a note from the tech firm, hey, the whole thing just crashed. And so for the first three or four months of us being open, we had a ghost technology platform. Customers would go in, place their orders, the orders would go nowhere. They would just be stored on this little site and go absolutely zero. And so every five to 10 minutes, I had myself or somebody logging in Cutting and pasting that picture and then fabricating emails that looked like they were from our system to every vendor and customer out there. It was a nightmare. I mean, we wasted 50, 80, 100 hours a week, just trying to make it look like we actually had a tech solution that worked. And so I think, you know, for, for, for founders and entrepreneurs who are not don't have a huge background in tech, I think there's a few things I could say. One. There are really, really cost-effective options and firms and people out there to help you develop, and you should find them. Two, you need to invest the time to start learning how to speak the language. And so every developer that you might work with may have different needs from you. I found one where we now know each other really well. And so when I wanna upgrade something, I can take a bunch of slides, schematic it out on a PowerPoint, with all the directions that I wanted to do, I get it to them, they code it and have it done instantly. But, you know, you don't have to overpay, you do have to commit the effort to make things right. And I think that, for me, was a shortcoming at first, because I just assumed whoever I talked to knew exactly what was going on in my head. And because I- Yeah, spoke, there's a whole, there's you know. a
1: whole method to product development, sounds yeah. like you, you stumbled through <laughs> some of the, the basics, but that's normal.
0: Yeah, right? it, it was so. Cr- I mean, I was so excited to launch the company, <laughs> and then right. the first five minutes in, hey, the site classic. just crashed.
1: <laughs> classic, classic. Now you became an entrepreneur later in your career. Any major advantages of starting later?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are. You know, you there's certainly disadvantages, but I, I think some of the advantages is that you have enough water under the bridge that you have a sense of who you want to be and how you want to be viewed. And I think if you don't have experience, it's hard to know what the culture of your organization or your product or your service should look like. Uh, The other part of this is that I had built up a lifetime of, of relationships that I had never tapped into. I had never asked for anything. And so when I was launching my own company, It just kept surfacing time and again, hey, I need somebody who knows this or does this or knows this person. Pick up the phone and I could say, hey, John Doe, I need you to introduce me to this person. Can you do that for me? And so there's a lot of relationship that you acquire over your career if you stay in a certain sector that you can capitalize on later. Um, For me, the medical device companies could have laughed me off the planet. But luckily, I had grown up in that space, and I knew almost every VP at every company because we all grew up together in in this industry. And so when I called them, I said, look, this is going to be our volume. We're going to get here. Give me a flyer for a year. Give me this price for my customers, and we'll make it right for you. They trusted me, and I had to deliver. But without those relationships, I would have just had a good idea and no way to operationalize it.
1: And so maybe what this industry needs is more people like you. Jumping out with a little bit more experience, a little bit more industry knowledge, a little bit more understanding of the unique processes, the regulations, et cetera, and putting their hands on it.
0: Yeah, I I think so. I think just being a sponge is incredibly important, right? I, you know, when I was a rep covering surgeries, I wanted to know everything that was going on in that room, not just the screw that my doctor was using for my product, right? But I wanted to know why anesthesia was looking at the EKG monitor. And I wanted to know if there was an issue on EKG, what would it look like? And I wanted to know what the medications that were being administered would do to the patient. So I have always just been an observer of the world around me. And part of that has really enabled me. So when I have a conversation with a physician, although I'm not a clinician, clinically, I know what the products are supposed to do. And I've talked to enough physicians that I know that shortcomings of one product versus another. So when I'm having a conversation with a client, we're talking about the dollars and cents, which your average entrepreneur would do. Hey, you've, you can save this on this. But then I can say, look, if we use this product, it's $100 less than this product. But we may spend $300 for accessories that we wouldn't have to. And so I treat it from a kind of an operational clinical business acumen level. And that's been very good for us in margin. And that's what you know the staff are now learning and they're emulating. Um, a lot of money that goes into healthcare no one has the framework to understand healthcare and so you could have a great solution but you're not speaking the language kind of like me in that that long-term strategy meeting
1: Chaz, thanks for being on today hey thank you so
0: much for being a part of this
1: so i love that i hope you did too uh really cool to have someone lay it down and explain what's happening the healthcare industry is such a black hole in the way the media covers it and the way all of us understand it. To have someone who's an insider explain what's happening at some level was really interesting to me. And here's the classic ask. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.